0: Hi, I'm Keegan, and this is A Bunch of Gamers. This is GM Talks, and I'm joined today with Travis Legg for The Scarred Lands. Welcome, Travis.
1: Hello, thanks for having me. It's nice to be here.
0: Yeah, so you're kind of the lead for uh, The Scarred Lands, right? Or at least the creative lead?
1: Yeah, so I'm uh, the line developer, which basically uh, means that I, under the direct supervision of uh, Matthew Dawkins, um, who oversees all of 5e, I sort of set the, I guess, roadmap for products and then generally do the direct development of each product as well. Though I'm hoping, depending on how things shake out in the coming months, to be able to expand that a little bit, have a few other developers come on as we expand the line. We'll we'll see where things go. Um, But since I took over as the line developer, I've basically also developed each individual product for Skyrim.
0: Wow, very cool. Uh, yeah. So for those not familiar with the Scarred Lands, uh, in your words, uh, how would you describe the setting?
1: Oh, it's um, it's post-apocalyptic fantasy. Uh, I often uh, describe it as if you took uh, a issue of Heavy Metal magazine and uh, slammed it into a player's handbook, you would have Scarred Lands. Um, within living memory, uh, so... Uh, ending about 150 years ago, there was a great war uh, on the planet between the gods and the titans. It's sort of uh, inspired by Greek mythology, but uh, different in the sense that this war happened uh, while people were there on the ground uh, among the mortals. So if you're playing a like a human um, it's quite possible that one of your great-grandparents fought in this war shoulder-to-shoulder with a god against the, the Titans and their armies. Um, if you're a member of a long-lived race, like an elf or a dwarf, it's entirely possible that you fought in this war um, shoulder-to-shoulder with gods against Titans and their armies. So it's it's a very uh, recent event. It, has, it had a profound effect uh, not only culturally on the world but uh, geographically on the world um, there are elements of the of the world itself that are literal scars from this war the continent of gelspad which is uh, where the players guide is set and it's sort of the main continent of play uh, was the battleground for a lot of these fights and is uh, Basically tainted because the titans couldn't be truly destroyed. They could be dismembered, imprisoned, um, otherwise uh, sort of incapacitated, but they couldn't be truly killed. Well, so a
0: little exalted in there then.
1: <laughs> well, a little bit, yeah. And and so like you have things like the eastern coast of Gelsbad, uh has the Blood Sea, which is so named because the Titan Kadoom lies chained at the floor of the ocean uh, with his heart ripped out, still bleeding. So it, it so much so that it has turned the ocean red and his blood uh, corrupts the sea life there. Okay. Um, the uh, Hornsaw Forest, which is one of the main settings of our forthcoming uh, sort of mega campaign, uh, Dead Man's Rust, is was once known as the Broadreach Forest and it was... Uh, home to numerous elf clans and the Broadreach unicorn, which was sort of this beautiful, peaceful uh, animal, kind of as you'd expect a fantasy unicorn to be. During the uh, Titans War, when the gods cornered the Titan Mormo and uh, rent her form asunder, tore her into little bits and scattered her across the world, most of her, you know, this happened in the Broadreach forest, and most of her blood sort of pooled into the earth there and absorbed into the trees and, and, Tainted it, um, tainting the wildlife as well. So the the unicorns that were there uh, mutated into these extremely heavily muscled uh, mockeries of a unicorn that have like a serrated horn, and hence they're called the Hornsaw saw unicorns now, which is the uh, the name of you know where the name of the forest now comes from. Okay. And they're now super violent and vicious and very very dangerous animals when they were once sort of these these peaceful creatures that one might associate with unicorns. Um, So those are just a couple of examples of how this event altered the world uh, physically. There was also, at one point, a grand empire that spanned the entire continent of of Galspad, and that shattered during the Divine War. And so now you have various nations and city-states rising up, trying to create a life anew in the wreckage of this war. Not all of them are good people, um so you have some sort of institutional enemies that the heroes can stand against um, who have sprung up you know to seize you know they're trying to seize this opportunity to put forth their own sort of selfish and evil agendas uh, and so the players have an opportunity for intrigue as well as they're as they're standing against some of these. Uh, nations that are rising. You, know, you you have in the in the south of Gelspad you have the Calastian hegemony, which is um the kingdom of, of Virduk, who is a human supremacist basically. Uh and he wishes to, you know, have humanity rule and subjugate the rest of the species on Galspad to to uh, live as slaves and servants. So he's not a nice guy. Uh And constantly sort of engaged in conquest and trying to expand his borders. So that's just one of the mortal enemies that you can sort of stand against in the Scarlet
0: Okay. So I'm going to uh, Dead Man's Arrest then. Uh, That's your upcoming Kickstarter, and that'll be out by the time this comes out this week, I think, because this will be out next Friday.
1: I believe so, yeah. The, that's what I'm, I'm told next week uh, as of this recording. We're recording it on the 13th, not to overdate our, our, our thing or anything, but um, I'm told next week. So by the time people can hear this, they'll be able to uh, run right over to Kickstarter and, and back it, I hope. Perfect. Um,
0: and uh, so you mentioned it's a mega campaign. So first to 20th level or somewhere in between?
1: It's first first to tenth, um, and basically covers. Uh, there are on ramps going from starting characters all the way up through. If you've been playing your character for uh, you know several years, you there 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 are ways to on ramp it that are that are built in. Uh, it is designed as there's sort of this main plot that runs through it. Uh, that's meant to take you from 1 to 10, but it's also built in a sandbox fashion, so you don't necessarily need to do... There are certain things that have to happen in a certain order, but a lot of it you don't need to do in any order whatsoever. You can step into it, step away from it. Uh, you can use it as fertile ground for uh, games that don't even touch on the central plot if you, if you wanted to. Um, it's very similar in approach to like, a, like Storm King's Thunder in that regard. The idea that you have this sort of main narrative that takes you through, but uh, there's so much utility outside of that narrative as well.
0: Okay, so then uh, I'm assuming it's more of an event-based adventure rather than a site-based adventure then? Is that a correct assumption?
1: Um, uh, It's a, a little of A, a little of B, I suppose. Um, there are a series of circumstances... The sort the the main plot assumes that if you're starting off first level, uh, it opens in the city of Leone, which is the capital of the Manticora Confederacy. The Manticora are a people who, during the Divine War, uh, served the God of Chaos and Destruction as his personal like hunting retinue, and uh, got quite a reputation for being these brutal warriors. And after the war, they've decided that they don't necessarily like that reputation. They want to sort of uh, explore the idea of being, you know, quote unquote, civil. So they've founded the city and are dedicating a lot of their resources to learning and to the arts. So they have a, a festival there called uh, Carnival Flowers, I mm-hmm. believe. And this starts off, or Night of Chronicles, that's the one that this one starts off during. Um, so it starts off at the Night of Chronicles. Uh, the players are there probably just to enjoy a festival. And uh, there's a bunch of sort of side plots and interesting fun things they can get into while they're there, but they also meet this bard who uh, is elderly, elderly dwarf, um, veteran of the Divine War, and uh, has not been to his home. In, in, he's from the Broadreach Horizon originally. He's one of the Broadreach dwarfs. Uh, which which are now basically an endangered species. He starts talking to the to the party. Uh, he's looking for an escort to take him home so he can spend his final years there, and that's kind of what kicks off the action. But what were you going to ask?
0: Okay. Oh, I was going to ask, uh, uh, what do you think uh, with that? Because I do like all the cultural stuff, because that definitely feels a bit more distinct from a standard D&D campaign, is right. how... Besides the cultural aspect, uh, what do you think separates this kind of mega-campaign from other mega-campaigns, like your Storm King Thunders and your Descent into Avernus?
1: Uh, I do think that the... uh, A couple things. One, exploring that culture, exploring the setting of the Scarred Lands, it is very much rooted in uh, areas that are unique to the Scarred Lands. Now, that's not to say that if you're running a different... Uh, 5th edition world or even a homebrew world that you couldn't lift these locations up and place them there Uh, but these are very steeped in the lore specific to the Scarred Lands we're dealing with people that are specific to the Scarred Lands and we're dealing a lot with sort of this idea of the aftermath of this grand event and how 150 years later that has shaped certain cultures that has shaped um, certain people's motivations. Uh, there are... One of the principal antagonists of the, of the uh, campaign is the uh, necromancers of the city of Glivid Hotel. And uh, they're basically... They run an entire metropolis um, where the living are pretty much a cash crop. For them, uh, they're all ultimately they will. The, the living are considered to be more beneficial to them once they are dead, um, and they create, you know, armies of undead from you know uh, things along those lines. And their ultimate goal uh, is twofold: one, they wish to uh, rule over all of gelsped but two, they wish to find a way to pierce the the veil between life and death without uh, having to rely on undeath. And that motivates a lot of what's going on uh, in this in this adventure. Sort of trying to achieve the best of both worlds, have all the benefits of of lichdom with none of the drawbacks is is kind of their their pie in the sky goal. Okay, That's kind and, of a cool
0: goal. I like that. Also, the the human cash crop made me just think back to your <laughs> mission statement. Going, yeah, that's pretty fucking metal right there. <laughs> right, exactly.
1: <laughs> Not great. Yeah, it's it's, it's <laughs> not a nice place to, to, to vacation by any stretch. And and the, and the necromancers of Liberdad tell they really are the most horrific sort of uh, antagonist I've ever encountered in a fantasy setting. They, um, you know, they have developed this technique called sharding, where they uh, can cleave off small portions of a living person's soul. Um, and the memories attached to that, and then integrate those into their undead, which serves two purposes. One, uh, it allows them to have incremental punishments for the living that are far more terrifying than killing them. Um, and two, when they do that, it creates... it Along with those memories comes a bit of sort of the, the spark of, of innovation that a human or the living soul would have. So they make their undead more... Competent by doing so, Um, so that's one of the punishments that the people of Glivatotel have to live under the fear of is that if they cut out of line, they might get you know their teenage years taken from their mind and put into a zombie, so that that zombie will be a slightly better uh, swords person or farmer. Um, (laughs) It's 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 really kind of horrifying. They have these little um, they have these undead children that they use that are vaguely psionic. Uh, They can sort of tell if someone is um, experiencing too great of an emotion because emotional expression is reserved for those who are uh, capable of, of performing magic in Glybidatel. If you're not a wizard, you're not, you're only allowed a certain amount of emotional expression. Um, And so these kids will sort of run around and just, you know, these eyeless undead children will run around and like point and scream at people who are feeling too much. Um, Yeah. It's, it's a horror show, uh, very yeah. much so. With that I, song.
0: I'm going to be honest, like if there was a little eyeless zombie baby screaming, I feel like they're just, everyone would light up like a Christmas tree to it. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's just like, well, uh, it was good while it lasted, everyone.
1: <laughs> well, and, and when you think about it, like what, like how horrible would your existence have to be uh, that, that that you become somewhat blasé to that site. <laughs> That's fair. Um, yes. You know, and of course, this is one of the places the adventurers have to try to get into, uh, whether through deception or through trying to kick in the front door, um, because there's one of the MacGuffins of the camp- campaign is uh, guarded within a, a very well protected stronghold within this city. Um, you know, so it's it you there's. If you're following the main plot, there's really no way to not wind up in Glybidotel at some point. Um, which is great, because I love uh, horror, so it, it worked out really really well that way.
0: Okay, um, so I think for, you answered my next question then, because my next question is going to be, what's the favorite part of uh, this campaign uh, that you guys are making? And it sounds like oh, it's uh, this part.
1: <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm really spoiled for choice, because, and it's so, one of the reasons we refer to it as a mega campaign is because it's so hard to um codify its theme or feeling it, it it narratively touches on a lot of bases without but it, it does so in a way that if you are following that sort of central narrative makes sense um much like life things don't just sort of fall into like a genre right yeah. you know, you start you start off this adventure and it's sort of this, sweet tender thing where you're helping this elderly person go home so they can retire uh and when you get to their home you find out uh you know you you take them through and there's um a bit of overland travel so you get to see a little bit of what uh central galspad is like before you dive into here's the thing that changes the status quo you know what I mean? You to just yeah. kind of see a little bit of what it's like normally as you're escorting them to the broad reach Horizon. Um, and when they arrive there, uh, they have not been in the forest since prior to the Divine War. So they don't know, uh, as the players most likely do not know, um, what all has transpired there over the course of the last 150 years. And so you have this forest, the Hornsaw Forest, it's, it's corrupted, uh, it's bleak, it's dark, and everything in it wants to kill you, and it's, it's also a very terrifying place. Uh, it is home to not only the Hornsaw Unicorn, but uh, one of my favorite creatures in all of fantasy, let alone in Scarred Lands, um, the Blood Reaper, which is a 10-foot tall, four-armed mantis that has uh, basically scimitars for, for lower arms, um, and just loves killing really for no reason just it, it, it it's just super aggressive uh doesn't hunt for food or sport it just hunts cuz it's angry at the universe um so you know that's kind of like one of the like, like that's one of the in- indigenous life forms here it's a, it's a spooky place but um when mormo's corruption happened to the hornsaw forest uh the elves who lived there um underwent this grand ritual to sort of enter the forest spiritually, and try to cleanse the taint. And they spent about 100 years in there doing that. While they were doing that, the dwarves who were indigenous to that forest uh, were pretty much down to a person rounded up by the necromancers of Gliwadatel, kidnapped and uh, compelled into slavery to to work the forges to give uh, arms and armor to the undead while they were in Gliwadatel. So, fast forward a century, the elves re from this, and though they were unable to cleanse the forest of Taint, they have cleansed a small band of uh, the northern border of the forest, which is now called the Broadreach Horizon, which is one of the locations, one of the places where a lot of the action of this campaign is set. And each of these elf clans, there's 29 elf clans, I believe, um each of these clans has their own village in the horizon. Uh, but they get out, the first thing they figure out is the Broadreach Dwarves are gone, so they go break them out um, and have now created them a new home so they have their own village in the horizon as well. But so you get there, and you get to start get this feeling of, like, how has this impacted these people? Uh, what has what has been the, the effect, not only of this sort of magical... Um, spiritual battle that they engaged in for a century, but also the effect of, you know, the physical ecological consequences they're dealing with. Right. They're looking at their once beautiful home and they have a, a simple scrap of it really by comparison that they're able to hold on to. And, you know, how do they hang on to hope in light of that? What, uh, What do they do to try to fight back against that corruption? Uh, There's a lot of storytelling ground to mine there.
0: I've got several ideas. A running joke between um, my players and me is that I am a sadist. where I It's like a sadist, but I do it with sad things, and it sounds (laughs) like the Scarred Lands will scratch that itch for me.
1: (laughs) Very much so, yeah. There's a lot of... You can really... I mean you can absolutely get into like you know um you know blood is spraying everywhere and it's it's mad it's massacre and 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 mayhem but you can also just tug at heartstrings all day long in this setting um you know and that and that also kind of brings it to the next thing is it's kind of like <laughs> I, I hate to put it this way, but it's kinda of like a Russian doll of misery this campaign. So <laughs> you get <laughs> sold. Sold <laughs> So you get there and you start, you know, learning about the Broadreach Horizon and, and interacting with these people. You find out some secrets about uh, your friend that you're traveling with here that maybe his tales of heroism during the Divine War are uh, embellished as a bard might do. Um and there's some consequences to that, but you also find out that there are a group of people there in the Broadreach Horizon called the uh Howl Legionnaires. And they're actually from a, a area called the Gleaming Valley, which is just to the west of the Broadreach Horizon. And uh, they are they're on a mission of sort of like peaceful cooperation. Um the area they're from is one of the few places in all of uh, Galisbad that wasn't really messed up too much by the Divine War, um, and it was given to their forefathers as a gift by the god Corian for for uh, their noble service. And the way that the Hollow Legionnaires came to be uh, was that um, Corian's personal guard were known as the Hollow Knights. They had been uh, mortals who had served him so faithfully that when the divine war started, he placed their bodies and the bodies of their families in stasis and moved their souls into, uh, this enchanted plate mail armor. It was virtually indestructible. Uh, they're immune to spells below level six. They're really, uh, they're combat tanks. They're incredibly, um, potent creatures, the hollow Knights. Okay. but um, they showed such great valor and they were so effective in war that the god Vangel, um, the god of chaos and destruction, the ones that the Manticora served, uh, became jealous of the Hollow Knights, so he went into the crypt where all their families and all their bodies were laying in stasis awaiting victory so they could be reanimated and have their reward, and he just chopped all their bodies to bits because he was, he was jealous at their combat prowess. Wow. Yeah. Vangel's not a very nice person. No, I... So-
0: <laughs> I-, I gathered.
1: <laughs> so, you know, war ends. Corian brings the Hollow Knights back to this, uh, to this crypt, and is like, here's your reward. And they're all like, ah! And they're horrified. And, <laughs> um, and so he says, well, I can't do anything about that, but I can give you this land that I was going to give you and-, and give you your freedom, and-, and you can make a new life for yourself." Well, the Hollow Knights had been in this pseudo-mystical state for so long that they had largely forgotten anything about, like, being people. Um, So they started to create uh, cities in the Gleaming Valley that were based on what they remembered cities should look like, but without any thought towards form or function. And they didn't have, you know, they weren't alive, so they didn't have, like, biological needs, so they weren't really thinking appropriately. As time went on, they started bringing in living people and redesigning some things and working on it. And they finally, just as they finally started to get their heads around, like, what is running a country like? Um, What does this mean? They started to realize that they uh, could, you know, go through some of these motions, but they were denied uh, certain aspects of of a real life, like offspring, for example. They couldn't uh, reproduce. So they constructed uh, these towers in the gleaming valley uh they're called spires and the spires are use uh some strange magical process uh that calls to the souls of warriors who uh died with valor or died with unfinished business or died um you know before their time or maybe died uh you know retired in a in a comfy bed surrounded by loved ones but still just for whatever reason, didn't want to go. And uh, brings those souls, attaches them to the spire that sort of most matches their personality and binds that soul into a suit of armor. And these are the Hollow Legionnaires. And they come out of this with um, vague memories, maybe, of who they were before, um, but largely born as new people who are sort of this cross-green between undead and construct. Okay. And so the Hollow Legionnaires... Um, are trying to, uh, you know, they've they've helped build up the Gleaming Valley into this thriving metropolis, There's, you know, or this thriving region. Um, and so now they're like, life's good for us. We want to go make life good for other people. They come to the Broadreach Horizon to try to uh, uh, offer their aid to the Broadreach Elves and Dwarves uh, in whatever whatever they might need. You know, we're here to help. We're not here to colonize. We're not here to tell you how to run your stuff. We're here to help. Um, But because it's the Scarred Lands and no good deed goes unpunished, uh, while they are there, uh, some of them start to go missing. And uh, things uh, that they have never encountered before uh, start to threaten the Howl Legionnaires, such as uh, the specter of illness and disease in ways they never could have imagined. And that's really where the campaign starts to uh, ramp up and find its feet and and really get into... um, The meat of the core central plot.
0: Okay, Uh, I don't know if this is just for uh, the campaign, but for the Scarred Lands in general, it seems like there's a really strong theme of uh, war is hell.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Um, Like it. One of the things, one of the nuances that I think that the elevator pitch of Scarred Lands misses, and it's very difficult to convey without really getting into. Uh, the setting itself, is the idea that you know you hear about gods versus titans and that I think summons in the mind of the listener the idea that the gods are somehow virtuous and these titans were somehow bad. And while the titans were, in fact, bad in Scarred Lands, um, they were uh, largely, with a few exceptions, uh, they were largely uh, evil through indifference. Um, they didn't care about what their actions did to the little ant-like creatures crawling around on the surface of the planet. It yeah, wasn't
0: the the do you apologize for the ant you stepped on kind of thing,
1: <laughs> right? Exactly. Um, there were a few who were sadistic and malicious uh, to the extreme, but most of them were just um, forces of nature that didn't really give give the matter much thought. So... The gods. On, on the other hand are tied to the alignments uh, each of the main divine victors, the primary gods of the setting um, is tied to one of the alignment combinations um, so they're they is a chaotic evil God okay. um, so know, so uh, are you
0: saying that the, then that the Titans do not have an alignment in scarred lands uh,
1: that, that
0: I, wouldn't, I wouldn't okay
1: right they're not they're <laughs> not like Right. They're almost kind of beyond alignment. I mean, they each would have, like, if if I were to stat them out, they would each have an alignment. Um, okay. But, I mean, but they're not, um, they're not governed by that in the way that the gods are. The gods are embodiments of these alignments. Um, okay. and, and when you take anything like that to its extreme, there's there are bad aspects to it. Um, you know, even the lawful good god, uh, Hadrad, is uh, kind of a prick. Because he's, um, you know, it's all about the rules. Who cares how you feel about it? Lawful stupid, um, as
0: it used to be called, I think.
1: Right, but in this case, it's more almost like lawful cruel. Okay. You know what I mean? Because it's 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 law with an eye toward the greater good, but with zero consideration for how that affects the the little guy. Okay. You know what I mean? No, so yeah, that, that makes sense. It, that makes it more of like a, um, you know, it, that can be more more horrific in a sense, right? Yeah, that actually um,
0: plays to a lot of the homebrew stuff I always do, where I do that alignment exists, but alignment is defined by God, so what you think is a good act can still be defined as quote-unquote evil simply because a God said so.
1: Right, right. And... One of the things that's very interesting about the Scarred Lands, um, in sort of a contrast to some of the other fantasy settings, um, and it's a fun thing to play with. Uh, the gods have been present; people who you might talk to uh, up the street in your village might have had a conversation with a god. Um, once in a while, they show their faces. Still, uh, it becomes the the divine victors, the main eight gods um are doing that less and less as the setting progresses because uh now that the titans are gone they sort of uh to get way deep into the metaphysics they sort of have to keep the world working mm-hmm. um so they they start becoming more um drawn into their celestial responsibilities and less able to uh, focus on getting directly involved in in shit going on on the surface right yeah um not so much the case for the demigods. They're still poking their nose in everybody's business all the time, which I have a great deal of fun with, um, because they also are are pretty intensely tied to an alignment, but not in the sense of an embodiment of it. Right, so they get to have get to have some wiggle room and have some fun, and and they get to make decisions that maybe would go against. Um, you know, the 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 victors have very rigid natures. Uh, the demigods they get to have some wiggle room with that. So that's fun. But uh, the the point I was, I guess, driving at was that um, there's not a whole lot of confusion about someone's um, theology, right? You don't,
0: there's
1: not a lot of vagary in how do we appropriately worship Corian? Well, Corian told you 15 years ago, (laughs) you know? (laughs) I got you
0: my thought process was as you were describing some of the uh the themes is like uh almost like a mishmash of uh pr- with the titans being kind of like represented with like princess mononoke and uh the war is hell kind of being like that uh that movie come and see i'm not sure if you're familiar with it
1: i, I have not seen that one
0: i'd say uh it's a, uh, it's a Former Soviet Union film that was in development hell for several years because it was so anti-war that the censors thought it was anti-Soviet. Oh, okay. And it was about this kid who joined a partisan group during World War II, and it just did not shy away from the horrors of war. It's one of those movies that you want to see once, and then that's that's enough. But it's a Mm. but one of those. I think think I've read
1: some. uh, I think I've read some reviews of it. Yeah, now that you mention it
0: so that that that's kind of what uh the description is of some like the war stuff you were talking about was evoking in the back of my mind when thinking about scarred lands
1: absolutely and and you know um lest any listener think that it's uh too heavy with that sort of thing this is one of the beauties of it is that is a one of the knobs on the setting that you can turn whichever way you want, you can very much dive into that and really explore that, uh, as a theme, um, of your, of your, of the story you are telling. Right. Or you can dial it way back and have that be background, uh, noise within the setting. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's something that, Nothing hinges particularly on, like, that having to be something you've got to cope with. Um, but it is, if that's something that you do want to explore and you do think there's a fertile ground there to uh, to grow your stories in, it's ample, ample, you know, there's ample opportunity to use it in the yeah, setting.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I just, that was the part that just made me go, huh, I could. <laughs> just kind of, like, picking at it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You- as you do, uh, so to the uh, back to the dead man's rust. Um, I'm kind of wondering then, because you'd mentioned it was sandboxing and things like that. Uh, what kind of um, how is how is the story structured for like the uh, the points that they do have to hit? How much how much leeway? Do you leave and what kind of suggest? Do you leave a lot of suggestions for if players go one way or another, or do you just have very specific bullet points, or do you make assumptions of how players are going to tackle problems?
1: There's actually, um, and I'm I'm super proud of this, and uh, I wish I could take more credit for being directly responsible for it, but the team of writers I had working on this book uh, really pulled it together in terms of. Um, Coming up with a way to build, I gave them the very, very loose directive that um, everywhere that the characters went had to be dripping with plot hooks that could bring them back to the main adventure, right? Um, Didn't necessarily have to, but could. And my authors went totally uh, just above and beyond the call of duty uh, in generating these things. Each place you go, uh, each person you meet, every faction that's introduced um, has a a number of sort of story hooks uh, that are presented with them. Um, You know, small side quests, you might say, right? Yeah. Um, And each of them has one or two of those that will, if followed, lead you back onto the path for the adventure and so that works in a number of ways one it really uh gives um illusion of we, we, this sounds derogatory it's not meant to it's it's an actual term in game design illusion of choice
0: um
1: yeah. the idea you know um it, it presents that in a really interesting and cool way that i've never seen outside of something like the witcher you know what i mean Out of, yeah. out of a, outside of a video game that's that broad um, we, I think we really nailed that, um, and that's 100% credit to my writing team. Um, so you have that aspect, but that also means that the GM can look at it and say, okay, I need to get this back on track. Uh, let's throw these three things in their way, and I'm sure they'll pick up one of them, right? Um, and if they don't, I have three more on deck I can throw in their way. Um there are certain things certain choices that the players make are going to make it more um you know might make it more immediate for them to find a solution than others um by way of example i mentioned earlier the hollow legionnaires if someone is playing a hollow legionnaire in this campaign it's going to become very personally uh important to them relatively quickly to start handling that main plot (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they <Fair>. become directly <laughs> directly imperiled. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I don't mind saying that playing Hollow Legionnaires in this... Uh, in fact, we have a thing in the uh, introduction of the book where it says uh, it recommends different approaches you can take as you're setting up your, your group for this game. And we refer to the hard mode as playing as a group of Hollow Legionnaires. Okay. Um, because they... Mode. Yeah, because they, you know, uh, they encounter this thing called Legionnaires' Rust, which is what the campaign is named from. Um, It's a a magical plague that is absolutely resistant to all sorts of magical healing. Uh, Remove Curse doesn't do anything for it. Uh, Paladins can still catch it. Uh, It's a new type of of threat, it's a new type of disease. Yeah. and so, if you're playing Hollow Legionnaires, you're you're in for some trouble if you just decide to ignore that going around because um, you'll catch it and then you'll die. Yeah. So it really does become, and it's and the way that they put that together, the way that we were able to craft sort of how this disease progresses and how it can be kept at bay to make it an ongoing threat without making without sucking the fun out of playing through it. Um The writers did a fantastic job of that. Uh, the other thing that was important to me to do um, was one of the things we have up front, the introduction of this book is we have an index of named NPCs. Um, and that index also has like a real brief like two sentence description of who they are and what what they want, basically so you you can always drop back in to that index and say okay i need to I need to steer this campaign one way or the other. Who do I grab and drop in their lap um, so that's a neat little thing and we've added a um an alternate advancement mechanic um where you can rather than like counting you know being counting the x p um you can clock advancement based on the number of side quests and or main campaign beats they've hit. Okay. Um, So that's another way where you can sort of encourage and and sort of guide people in a direction. Or also, you know, the campaign at one point, as I mentioned before, requires you to go into Glivid Hotel and uh, acquire a thing. Um, That's not something you want to try to do at fourth or fifth level. It's going to end bad for you and the whole group. Um, so uh, you can go in and say, "Oh well, fortunately, we have this wealth of side quests that we can, uh, you know, have you kind of run around and, and attack a little while, um, all of which retain enough immediacy that it doesn't feel like you're just out in the field killing boars to get XP." You know what I mean? No, I, um, I totally get what. You mean.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's why so, I, I always use uh, Alternate XP in my D&D games. So. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <It's, no>. Right. <laughs> right. So everybody has their agendas and their things. And the other cool thing about it is everybody has um, something they can offer to the players um, to help them in their goals, right? Even a lot of the enemy factions that you run into in this game... Um, They're absolutely presented as antagonists, but there's also a couple of hooks in there where it's like, yeah, these people are terrible, but if you get into bed with them, you can get this thing, which will help you in this way. (laughs) You know what I mean? The
0: standard uh, DM moral dilemma stuff.
1: (laughs) Right, exactly. And and so you can really wind up um, uh, forging some uh, alliances of convenience um, that I think also make for cool, fertile... Um, ground to, you know, uh, carry the campaign on beyond the beyond the uh, covers of the book, right? Because, you know, just by way of example, pulling one thing out of, off the top of my head, um, as I mentioned before, the Titan Mormo was killed there in the Hornsaw Forest. That's why it is what it is. There's a group called the Cult of the Serpent Descendant, and their whole uh, purpose for existing is to try to resurrect Mormo. Um and they have amassed a great deal of magical uh, prowess and influence through the area, right? So you might make a truce with the Cult of the Serpent Ascendant to deal with the immediate problem. But the minute the immediate problem is done, now all bets are off and you have this enemy who ha- has now had an intimate working knowledge of how you operate. You know what I mean? So now you have an antagonist that's ready-baked that you have a history with, that you can have those sort of Superman-Lex Luthor kind of, uh, you know, uh, standoffs with. The
0: DC fan in me uh, really appreciates that (laughs) reference.
1: (laughs) I love cultivating that stuff. I love the idea that, you know, session 20 of of, of a campaign, I can bring someone that you didn't like on session three, but you wound up having to work with, and now you know when when they do the final heel turn. Um, now you have all that history to draw from. You know what I mean? I just I, that stuff tickles me pink as a storyteller. Um, so I tried to seed as much of that through it as we could. Um, so yeah, it's just it's it's very um, robust in in the way that you can attack that and in, in, in ways that the GM can sort of uh, twist the dials and pull the strings on who's a friend, who's an enemy. Um, you know, even going beyond like the the macro level of like these people who are clearly evil. There's, like I said, like 29 uh, clans of the of the broadreach elves, and not all of them are particularly friendly. Not all of them are particularly what one might call good. Um, you know, uh, so you might wind up earning the enmity of one of those clans, or more than one of those clans. You know, and that yeah, can turn yeah. into the the seed for the next. next step um so that's another another thing when we talk about it being a mega campaign is um there are so many things that are introduced in here that either plant the seed or give you the opportunity once the main uh threat has been addressed to go back and resolve um that you can absolutely take it through all the way up to 20th level um one last example and then I'll stop rambling and let you give me the question I know I talk a lot I'm sorry <laughs> no you're um, fine Matthew but, gave uh, <laughs> me the same same runaround
0: <laughs> he apologized for it too <laughs> I'm noticing a trend with the uh, Uonix Path folks
1: <laughs> we, we we're talkers absolutely but, I love uh, it <laughs> um so there's uh I, I mentioned to you about the, the uh, broadreach Elves giving themselves over to the forest. There were a group of them that were too tainted or too saddened to do so. And so they went to this place called the Vale of Sorrows and basically committed mass suicide. And their, um, their misery was so great uh, that it mixed with the taint that Mormo had left and created what's called a Woodrack Dragon, um, which is... Uh, A dragon made basically out of living wood, spite, and misery. And there's one quest chain that is introduced, a side quest that's introduced, um, where you have an opportunity to make a long-standing, to the degree of creating a new playable race, uh, change to the world. Um, But one of the things you need to do is go get that dragon's heart. All right. <laughs> so <laughs> that's probably nice. not something you're, you're even necessarily going to try at 10th level. You know what I mean? That yeah, might... no, fair,
0: fair, fair. I don't um, know. It's it's pretty hard to kill 10th level characters, man. I've tried. <laughs> it, it is, but
1: um, uh, rack dragons are pretty nuts. I don't know if you've had a chance to look at the Scarred Lands creature collection, but there are, there are some have of the... I not yet.
0: I only yeah, have Yeah, there the are some guide. rack
1: dragons... Oh, you gotta check out Creature Collection. It's it's madness. There's I think there's a couple of rack dragons in the back of the player's guide, but um because Rack Dragons, that's another little fun uh setting quirk. The true dragons in Scarred Lands all buggered off and hid when the Titans War started. They didn't want anything to do with it. Uh, so the Titans uh used this thing called rack, which is basically um it's negative emotion mixed with elemental energy. And they use these to form their dragons. So um, rather than being motivated by, like, I'm going to hoard treasure and, um, you know, and knowledge and just have a big pile of stuff to sit on, the dragons that you face in Scarred Lands are are motivated by just every negative emotion you can fathom fueled at elemental intensity. (laughs) All right. So they're not nice, and, they're, and they and they don't play nice. Um, but yeah, so that's that's like one. That's just one of the sort of higher level conflicts you can get into. Is well, let's go slay this rack dragon, and um, but it's but it's worth it. The other thing we tried to do uh, is make sure that all of these story hooks and side quests and the main plot, the risk is justified, in the rewards you can reap. Um, for for the characters and for the setting uh, as you engage in these in these things. So. All
0: right. So this one's a little more uh, directed to you rather than the book as a whole is uh, when you're running your own Scarred games, what kind of uh, media, books, TV, movies do you draw from for inspiration?
1: Oh, goodness. That's a good question. That's a really good question. Um, all sorts of them. Um, I'm... I'm a giant nerd. I used to work in independent film, so I'm a big film geek. Um, I will often drop pop culture references in left and right, both from within and outside of uh, geekdom. I pull on Supernatural probably an awful lot, the TV show. But okay. part of that is because one of the I run two streams right now, um, every Monday at uh, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Onyx Path channel. I run Scarred A Family Affair. And the premise of that uh, stream is that all these characters of various backgrounds and races were all adopted by the same halfling. Um, so they're brothers and sisters, but like, you know, one is a scrag, like a sea troll. And the other one's a, a Slytherin rat folk. And, you know, one of them is a, a, is a tiefling. Um, so like <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's an adoptive chosen family. Okay. And and the supernatural vibe on in that game is strong. The uh you know <laughs> uh the family first over everything else we will burn the world down to make sure we're, you know, that we're okay. <laughs> you know, all that stuff. Um you know, but by the same token, uh one of my favorite uh fantasy touchstones because I think it gets missed a lot in D&D these days um is Dragonlance, the first Dragonlance book, Dragons of Autumn Twilight. Um, I I fall back to that ref to the reference of that a lot, uh, particularly when um, describing the actual horrors of that are being faced. Sometimes I've never read anything as terrifying as the description in that book of the first time a dragon attacks. Um, that was
0: pretty good, actually, yeah. Yeah,
1: like in, any, like in any media, nothing I've ever read has scared me that much. <laughs> you know <laughs> what I mean? And grossed me out that much, by the way, because it doesn't no. just end with the fear. It ends yeah. with this horrible description of, like, this poor person not dead and, like, <laughs> melting. It's just oh. awful. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so oh, that's yeah. kind of the
1: energy I try to bring.
0: <laughs> that's nice. Nice. uh yeah, I've been pulling a lot from uh, Michael Moorcock. I ran a uh, an actual play for Demigod a couple months ago, right before I interviewed Neil, and uh, anyone who listened to it probably went, is this motherfucker just copying the never-ending story mixed with Elric? And the answer was yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's one of the cool things about Scion, though. Like, I, I really love that game, and... Um, I, I sort of dropped the seed of the idea about it every once in a while, and I probably will continue to do so until, uh, rich Thomas either just flat out tells me to shut up or lets me do it. But I think that there would be a cool, I think there, there'd be a cool space to, uh, explore where, uh, scion and scarred Lands overlap. I think if you are a five E fan and you like scarred Lands and you've never checked out story path system, you should go pick up scion. Cause I think you would really dig it. Um, and the the opposite is true. I think if you like Cyan a lot, uh, check out Scarred Lens because I think you'll you'll dig it. It's you know it's they're they're definitely cousins. You know, like in terms yeah. of like um, <clears throat> of just theme and feel. Um, okay. Oh so. yeah,
0: I, I do like Scion. It's my second favorite story story path system. My first being they came from uh, that one. Just the rules. I grokked a lot faster than uh, the other two.
1: Yeah, they came from as is a fun fun game. I'm I am uh, a died in the wool Trinity fan. I've been a Trinity uh, aficionado since uh, the since I first saw the announcement, like in the back of I don't know it was Clan book Ravnos or something that said you know in 1998 White Wolf takes you beyond the world of darkness to the stars, I was like, fucking sold.
0: <laughs> you know? a tumultuous journey from 3.5 D&D to Chronicles of Darkness to Exalted to Old World of Darkness.
1: Uh, mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> Exalted's my yeah. game, though. That is, um, if I had been recording... Uh, when I did my old second edition games, you would uh, notice a lot of shonen tropes. <laughs> when I ran that, <laughs> uh, um, so, that's fair. It's a good place yeah. for it. Uh, yeah, well, because the sky is a physical object in creation. At least it was in second edition. So someone got knocked in the air, and so he did a stunt where he's like, "I flip. I let the hit carry me to the sky. I launch off the sky, and I punch him in his fucking face." <laughs>
1: yeah i i i love the um the the sheer level of of that of like i guess for lack of a better term absurdity that one can uh one can bring to a exalted game
0: It, it it is a great thing uh my next question for you actually is because not everything you want in your own games necessarily fits in let's say a rule book for everyone else what kind of house rules do you like to implement in your own scarred land games
1: um that's a good question uh it's it's it, and it's a little weird for me because um i have been running uh streams so much lately like all, almost all my gaming now is done in, in front of an audience right mm-hmm. and in that position specifically when i'm doing scarred lands i am very much brand ambassador guy yeah So, I have tried to um, minimize my amount of house ruling um, just because I don't want to miscommunicate the rules to somebody who's just running into it for the first time.
0: No, that makes perfect
1: sense. Um, But having said that, though, and this annoys, I have a couple, I have one player in particular, uh, Sarah Stewart, who I love you, Sarah, and I'm sorry. uh, I'm going to call you out on this podcast, but I totally am. She's very much a um, power gamer. <laughs> she's okay. very much a rules lawyer, and she's very much a like a, a twink. Like I want, I want. If we were playing riffs, she'd be playing a glitter boy. Um, <laughs> and so, um, I know this gets under her skin a lot. But I am a big fan of hand um and of, of 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 allowing yourself the freedom to do what the story dictates. And who gives a shit what it says in the book? both with rules and with narrative. But I do that a lot less, which I'm sure would also be a surprise to my players to know. I do that a lot less on stream than I do like at a private table. You know, If I'm at a private table, I'm like, uh, if you get a general idea of... Because I don't expect you to sit down at my table and be a scholar of the setting we're playing. So if you have a general idea of the feel and flavor of, of the game we're playing, you'll be fine. If you spend all of your time becoming a lore hound, Ah, uh, you will probably be disappointed because, first of all, I'm not. Uh, when I write a book for this, I consult other books. I don't memorize the lore. I have other things up there in my head. Uh, you know what I mean? Like I memorize the neat lore that I like. Uh, but you know, if I if I'm getting into some corner of the of the universe that I don't usually interact with, I reference it, and then if it comes up in a game and it's not pertinent to the story I'm telling, or it would be much more narratively convenient to me that it were different, i just change it. Yeah, and I encourage people to do that uh, whenever possible. These, these books are there to inspire and, and to provide a framework, you know? It's not uh, some holy canon handed down on uh, three tablets until Mel Brooks drops one of them. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a set of guidelines and a, and a set of ideas, you know? I would say if you're going to make big drastic rule changes or big drastic lore changes, you know, let your players know that, have a conversation about it, you know. But, I mean, if you're making detailed choices on the fly, there's nothing, there's, there's nothing to me that gr- will grind the fun out of a game faster than, like, we have to stop and correct this minutiae of the lore so that this whole narrative works. That makes um, sense. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, that's, that, that's work for writers and developers and people are getting paid for their time to do.
0: Because yeah. <laughs> you know? I, uh, cause I run, run the Facebook page where we've... I just, I just make a lot of memes. I think you've probably seen a few of them. I, at one point, I made a Werewolf the Apocalypse meme and I realized I put a house rule on that meme because someone's like, is that what the rule says? And I'm like, does it not? I haven't looked at the <laughs> rule section in five years. <laughs> right shit well and this is getting enough reacts to where apparently lots of people house this way
1: right well and the other thing that's funny about that (coughs) is there are so many things that um if i wasn't streaming i'm sure i would house rule and never know i had house ruled them you know what i mean because i wouldn't be compelled to look them up i would just go with what sounds right in my head and i think it's funny because i've had some discussions with the with the onyx path folk who've been doing this since the white wolf days you know and since like the original white wolf days and even like in creating like the 20th anniversary editions a lot of the mission statement was you know you don't need to create the books we had you need to make it feel like the books we had except with rules that work better under scrutiny
0: (laughs) You mean i can't take uh, a three-point merit that makes me immune to silver you're talking madness travis
1: right i know right <laughs> um but you know because so many people did that so many people would you know who was stopping combat every round to go and look up you know how a particular role was supposed to go no one you would make your call and you would move forward if there was confusion or dispute. I mean I don't maybe this maybe I'm an anomaly and every gamer I know is an anomaly but I've never sat at a table um, unless there was a stream happening um, where people would stop a combat to look up a rule unless there was a dispute about how that rule went yep you know you know that was that to me that was always the mark of like oh that person's a rules lawyer and that's gonna grind all my fun down to nothingness mm-hmm. um, you know what I mean um but bless the rules lawyers, they're fun. And, and another thing that, that is, is—is I will say, about gaming in the 21st century that I absolutely love in terms of sticking closer to what's in the books for the rules is now that everyone has a, a reader, you know, in their pocket, everybody can open a PDF on their phone, if nothing else, right? You know, now the GM has a freedom to offload some of that onto the players, even in real time, that maybe wasn't there in the past, you know? Okay, I'm going to cast Firebolt at this person. Okay, well, why don't you tell me what Firebolt does? Oh, well, yeah, let me just go look it up. At, let me click on the Firebolt thing on my D&D Beyond sheet, and it will bring up and tell me what Firebolt does. Mm-hmm. You know, or let me check, <laughs> let me search in the PDF, and it will tell me what that spell does. It's a very different environment than... Um, Oh, I got to look up my spell. Hold on, let me try to remember which book it's in. Um, <laughs> <you>
0: know, <laughs> I, I remember the I remember the twenty to thirty pound backpack that got hauled around with the three point five books before before yep. PDFs were a thing. Uh,
1: exactly. You know. I actually
0: relied on my rules lawyers. I'm like, hey, what's this rule again? Thanks.
1: <laughs> yeah, you could tell the person who had the best best command of the rules probably because. They had a duffel bag that looked like they were, you know, getting ready to invade a foreign country, and they had arms four times as big around as their head from carrying around we, sixty books, you know, we, everywhere they went.
0: We created a uh, we created a throne one of our games with all the books we had. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it was absurd. I, I ran a um, a Mage the Ascension game for three years uh, in the late nineties. We met at a Denny's every Sunday night. And I would walk into that Denny's, and I kid you not, I was carrying 12, uh, you know, not small mage books, you know, in a duffel bag. And I'd come in and thunk it down, and everyone in the entire restaurant would kind of look over at me because it sounded like I tried to flip the table over. (laughs) Yep. And now I can have all that in my pocket.
0: Yep, exactly. It's great. I, I always GM now with my laptop in front of me and I have my notes peppered through several documents and things like that and I can just switch between them real easy. And if I need to look up a gift I put in my notes the page reference.
1: <laughs> right. And this is this is the page number and there we go. Well yeah. and it's funny too, because I'm I'm at this I'm at the age where um Despite the fact that I'm running on a stream and I have, um, you know, a camera in my face, my computer in front of me, all my resources at my fingertips, uh, never mind that I also have a phone and a tablet that can also access these things, I still find myself, probably fifty percent of the time, grabbing a, a hard copy book and flipping through it just because uh-huh. I just because habit.
0: Yep. Uh, let me <laughs> turn this on because like- I got. <laughs> yeah
1: exactly Uh, every time man
0: every time
1: (laughs) exactly yeah and there's something about the feel of a book and there's something about you know having that having that tactile experience you know there's a merit to it but i really have tried to parse down my role-playing game collection to books that i genuinely like either genuinely enjoy above and beyond the average supplement or something that I contributed to, or something that I really want to make sure that I have spent as much money on as possible on.
0: That makes uh, sense.
1: To support the create creators. You know, I have I have a hard copy of They Came From Beneath the Sea because I backed that on Backer Kit after the Kickstarter was over. I have a hard copy of Cavaliers of Mars because it's one of the greatest role-playing games ever made. And because Rose Bailey is an amazing carbon-based life form. You know, I have stuff like that. I have physical Pugmire books. Uh, yeah, I've worked on them, and cause I love Pugmire, uh, I sure do have the special edition foil cover creature collection. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it's, yeah. again, it's it's not the oh boy, we need to buy a new bookshelf because because uh, there's you know I've, I've run out of space with all the three point five books that like those days are gone.
0: Okay. Uh, they are not gone for me. I am a, I am a dice goblin, but also a book goblin, uh, mm. and it's just a habit I have. I I have Cavaliers of Mars. I really want to run it at some point. I might, I might reach out in a future episode to pick your brain about what you think about Cavaliers and how you run that game, because that sounds like a fun oh, conversation.
1: Um- I would love to let you know as soon as I get a chance to run it. I've been wanting actually myself to put together a stream for it for the Twitch channel. Cause I don't know if uh, Matthew mentioned or if I mentioned, but in addition to doing Scarred Lands, I'm the Twitch uh, programming coordinator for Path. Um, So I do all the scheduling of the, of the programming there. And I've really, wa- I've really wanted to get a, a regular uh, or at least an extended Cavaliers show on the channel. Um, and, uh, bought the book partially because I was ready to roll up my sleeves and do it myself. I couldn't get somebody else to put it together. Um, But then obviously, you know, my time is a little bit taken up at the moment.
0: No, (laughs) Um, I I hear you. I hear you. Not enough time to run all the games I want to run, man. I I, I maxed out at two.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a, it's hard. And, you know, obviously with the Kickstarter going on, you know, trying to do promotions for that. And we just came off the back of releasing Frostlands Ephemeralic as well, which is an expansion for Scarredlands that opens the northern continent up for community content. And it's the first time that this continent has been introduced for 5th edition. And so we've been doing a lot of streaming to promote that as well. Um, so these are kind of, have been back-to-back releases. So my time has just really been very thin. But as soon as I'm clear of these woods. I absolutely intend to dive into some Cavaliers of Mars for the channel. Nice. You know, so everyone who's listening should go make sure that they not only back Dead Man's Rest on Kickstarter, but tell three of your friends to do the same so that I can have a gangbusters, awesomely successful Kickstarter so that I can take a breather and put together a Cavaliers of Mars game. <laughs> If for no other reason, if this hasn't, if the whole thing hasn't convinced you, everything you've heard hasn't convinced you how awesome Skylands is, just go back it so we can get to a Cavaliers of Mars stream quickly.
0: You heard it here first. <laughs> Hi, everyone, this is, in fact, the Travis Legg Cavaliers of Mars Kickstarter event. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm telling you, um, if, if Rose threw up a Kickstarter for an uh, expansion tomorrow, I would be all over it.
0: Absolutely, because um, I've been is, a big fan of uh, like the John Carter of Mars stuff growing up. Once you pull some of the nineteen twenty isms out of it, uh, right? But right.
1: which which Cavaliers does a pretty good job of of ev- evoking that feel without evoking all the baggage that comes along with it. Yeah, um, and that, that
0: was kind of my issue with the the actual game of. John Carter of Mars. It does a very, very good job of making you feel like you're in John Carter of Mars. Unfortunately, it also makes you realize you're playing <laughs> John Carter of Mars.
1: Right. Ooh, this is a little too accurate. <laughs> and it's like,
0: we worked with the Barossa fe- like, estate. Did you have to? Uh, <laughs> was it necessary? Exactly. I... Oh man, because I, I listen to audiobooks when I I lift, and I went back and revisited the John Carter of Mars, and I'm like, eh, there's a lot of 20-isms here, but it's 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 not the worst of the 1920-isms I've ever heard, and then I went and listened to Tar the first Tarzan, which I had never read, and it's, whew, that, yeah. uh, yeah. uh it, it sucks real bad when you're benching like 185 pounds and you hear just three sentences of nothing but racial slurs, and you're just like, Jesus Christ, Is the weight's coming down on you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's being crushed uh, in two ways at the same time. Yeah. Um, And it's interesting, uh, not not to keep us too far afield, but um, one of the other things I had the opportunity to work on recently was Adventure, which I I would assume will be coming up fairly soon for Kickstarter itself. and Adventure is the Trinity Continuum game that's set in the 19... Originally set in the 1920s, they have now moved the setting forward to the 30s. Okay. Um, for a number of reasons, not the least of which is the ability to punch Nazis in-game. Strong motivation. I recall I regret...
0: hearing that in a stream.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I 100% endorse it. Um, So... But in working with that, uh, trying to thread the needle of... We do not want we we do not want to ignore what was going on in the world at that point, right? Yeah. Uh, by, any, by any stretch of the imagination, but we also want to make very clear that we're not condoning it, and that that's not our work. That's not considered a virtue in our world. That the people of our the heroes of our world uh, stand against that, just like the heroes of the real world did at the time. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. <laughs>
0: like, <laughs> it's uh <laughs> like, it's one of the reasons I really liked uh, Harlem Unbound is because it it did a very good job of presenting that ugly aspect of America and showing how you can implement it in a, I guess for a lack of a better word safe way so that everyone has buy-in and things like that
1: right exactly and that's and that's the um and I think that a good you know obviously if you're talking about you know, Uh, planetary romance on fictionalized Mars, you don't have to do that so much. Uh, You know what I mean? Uh, But when you're talking about, like, we're going to set a game in the 1930s in the really real world. Um, Yeah, you got to... I think you have a responsibility um, to address those issues like an adult um, and present your audience with the tools to address those issues like an adult. Even in Scarred Lands, which is a... Straight up made up from whole cloth fantasy ass never existed world, Um, because there are elements that are disturbing, upsetting. uh, We spend time speaking to the reader, um, be they a player or a GM about you know these are some these are some of the ways you might want to address making sure your players are safe. These are uh, you know there's a there's a Greek myth you know there's Greek mythology. inspiration of scarred Lands. uh and in the lore that means there's some greek mythology-ish stuff that happened yeah right yeah you know what i mean and and if i don't know if you've you know the if dear yep. dear listener if you've ever looked at greek mythology terrible things happened in it. <laughs> mm-hmm. and so talking about like how do you represent that if you represent that at the table how how do you represent it what are we do what what do we do in the setting to address uh, how X action leads to Y consequence um, and what safety tools should you, um, should you implement and what setting elements are not going to matter if you decide to ignore, you know what I mean? And, yeah. and giving, giving people the permission to say, you don't have to delve into this topic to be playing scarred Land. You know, um, you can just say, nah, we're not going to mess with that. We're not going to have that show up on our screen. And that's totally fine. But the the certainly just pretending it's not a problem is a problem. And absolutely just presenting it, you know, something of a 20s-ish feel in the same manner in which it would have been presented in the 20s is absolutely a problem. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I, I,
0: I totally hear what you're saying. So, two last things, then Travis, uh, and then I will sure. let you get on to your evening. Just for anyone who's made it this far, one last elevator pitch for Scarred Lands and Dead Man's Rust, and then I'll have the question we ask all of our illustrious guests.
1: Beautiful. So yeah, um, just Scarred Lands. Uh, I, I all I can say is you know it really is probably my favorite Dungeons and Dragons setting and, and was long before I ever got a chance to work on it. Uh, it's heavy metal. It's horror. It's uh, post-apocalyptic fantasy. It's as brutal as you want it to be. And, but it's grim, bright. You have things are bad, but you're the heroes and you get a chance to make them better. And nothing feels better to me at the table than when the heroes haggard, but, but victorious uh, you know, view the dawn of a brighter new day because of their actions. And steering right into that, uh, Dead Man's Rust, which will be on Kickstarter now, not only uh, gives you multiple opportunities to do that, but it allows you to be in the driver's seat as as players as to how you want to tackle the campaign. And it gives you an opportunity if you haven't yet even checked out Scarred Lands, We're going to have add-ons and, and different ways where you can pick up a whole bunch of Scarred Lands product cheaper than you're going to find anywhere else by backing this Kickstarter. So it's really a a good opportunity for existing fans to pick up something new and cool, or for people who are new to the setting to really dive in. And and in case I didn't mention it, if you do back it on Kickstarter, uh, we're going to be rolling out the manuscript for the adventure as the Kickstarter is going on while it's live. So, you can dive right in and start playing a couple of these adventures, picking up some of the one shots and, you know, some of the side quests and running them as one shots, really getting to know the world before you're fully committed, right? You know, because you can always, if you back it for five bucks, you run a couple of the games and you're like, this isn't my cup of tea. You can, you don't, you can back out of the Kickstarter. You know, it's, it's, it's really like a no risk uh, (laughs) proposition. And I am firmly confident that if you check this thing out, uh, you will be champing at the bit to make sure you get a nice hard copy with all the trimmings and all sorts of expansions to it.
0: Awesome. Awesome. And so this is the question we always ask our guests uh, since we are primarily talking about GMs and GM tips. Travis, if you money, people, distance, whatever, was not an ob- obstacle, what would your dream game be to run?
1: Boy, uh with people who are currently alive or not.
0: Either or dream game, it can go into any realm of fantasy as or as far out in the weeds as you want.
1: That is really hard to answer. I've had the unique experience of running games that were developed by people who are heroes of mine for the people who developed them. That box has been ticked for me a little bit. Fair? Um Though I would love to probably get like Gary Gygax, Rich Thomas, Deborah Ann Wall, and Matthew Mercer at a table and run riffs for them. Mainly because that's the most ridiculous thing I could imagine to do if I had that group of people. Fair. Um, <laughs> but... Good answer. <laughs> I just think it would be. I, first of all, that's always my go-to. If we're like we're gonna do something silly, let's play rifts. Um, <laughs> <laughs> <you know? laughs> but uh, yeah, that would be the, the, the group I would want to play with. I think it would be a lot of fun.
0: Very cool. Yeah. So, uh, Travis, where can people find you if you want to be found?
1: Um, I am pretty much everywhere on the internet. Is at Travis Leg L E G G E, Facebook. Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, though I never post on there. And when I'm not there, I have a Patreon, also patreon.com forward slash Travis Leg where I talk a little bit about the things behind the scenes for my own uh, independent work that's not part of Onyx Path. And you can find me on Twitch at the Onyx Path, twitch.tv forward slash the Onyx Path, or my own channel, which is twitch.tv forward slash Plastic Age Plays, like... Silver Age or Golden Age, but plastic.
0: All right, perfect. And I'm Keegan with a bunch of gamers. You can find us on Facebook, Spotify, Apple Podcast, Podbean, but you will never find me on Twitter. I find it a cesspool. Thank you.